0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network a podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Jürgen Matthias to the show. Jürgen is the director of applied research at the Jack Joseph and Morton Mendel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and the author or editor of several volumes about the Holocaust. Today, we'll be talking about his book, War, Pacification, and Mass Murder, 1939, the Einsatzgruppen in Poland, which Jurgen edited with Jochen Bühler and Klaus Michael Molmann. The book is part of a series of books published by the museum entitled Documenting Life and Destruction, Holocaust Sources in Context. Like the other books in the series, this book includes a wide variety of carefully chosen documents. But... Rather than simply providing a paragraph of introduction to go along with the documents, Jürgen and his colleagues include extensive sections of prose, putting the documents into context, and crafting a broader narrative from them. It's a wonderful book, which sheds light on an important and underexamined moment in the evolution of German actions and policies. I'm thrilled to talking with him about it, and so with that, Jürgen, thanks for being with us on New Books in Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, why don't we start by just giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the history of the Holocaust?
1: Well, I'm a, uh, an historian. I'm, I'm German and born in Germany. And I basically owe my place where I am right now to three people. One is Hans Mommsen, who was my professor at Tour University in Bochum. I studied with him there. The second person is Konrad Tri, the professor of German studies in Australia, in Australia, um, who supported. Very much my being there in Australia during my PhD, and then also was the chief historian at the War Crimes Investigation Unit, uh, which I was involved in for for some time. Mm -hmm. And the third person is Raoul Hilberg, who is the doyen of of Holocaust Studies, as many of your listeners might know, who fostered and and really pushed the idea of, of research and publications at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Early
0: on in the museum's uh, history, yeah, did, uh, many many of the people who who think of the museum, and, and I think probably almost everybody in the United States at least knows about it, think thinks of the museum in terms of the exhibit. But but it actually spends a great deal of time and attention and resources supporting research into and, and teaching about the Holocaust. Um, what it, can you talk a little bit about what that? what that element of the museum's mission is and and how the Mundell Center supports it.
1: Well, as you said, it's it's absolutely true that most of the the audience consists of the people who come through the building and spend a lot of time in the permanent exhibition. However, there is a range of of, uh, uh, things the museum is doing uh, physically in the building and then, of course, in other ways, uh, publishing on the web and in print. Uh, where I am at uh, Jack Joseph at Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies within the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, we really deal with in-house research and publication projects. So this is really geared towards a, a more specific and a, if you like a little narrower audience than the audience in the museum tries to attract through its ex- exhibition. So we are trying to to mine the museum's archives, which are really extensive for anyone who has been here, I think will be quite impressed with the number of, of documents that we have here uh, on site, which have been gathered over many years in more than 40 countries. Uh, it's part of the museum's mission on rescuing the evidence. But this is really the basis for our project on documenting life in construction that you briefly described in your setup piece. And we are really privileged to, to be here, the, the, uh, the small group of scholars who work on this project, uh, to mine this, this material and to have it right there at our fingertips. Increasingly, however, a lot of that material that's here in the archive uh, can be accessed also online. So this is hmm. going in conjunction with digitization that many other institutions
0: are doing. This is maybe appropriate, an appropriate time you're going to, to give your disclaimer.
1: Yes, well, I have to say that what I say are, are my opinions and not the, the opinions of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum.
0: Um, so what is this series about? How did you all decide to um, to work on this series, and what are your hopes for it?
1: Well, uh, it's really an outgrowth of, of the amount of stuff, let's put it that way, uh, <clears throat> that the museum has collected. It comes in, in multiple formats, but it's not only documents, uh, as we classically would understand, them, written documentation from the Nazi era. Uh, There's a lot of material that we have here by way of microfilm copies that come from a range of archives, again, from many, many countries. Uh, The project started basically uh, at the time of the emergence of the museum uh, with the Soviet Union when it was starting to disintegrate, and from there has really spread into, well, Most of the the countries on the globe, really, as as far as they have any uh, um, archival uh, um, set of documentation that might be relevant to the museum. So there was a a massive collecting effort underway, and it still is. So the colleagues who are working on that are still very active in many countries. It's here. It's available to, to researchers and many of our fellows. One of the programs the museum is doing here, and the center specifically, is is geared toward attracting fellows. We have a competitive uh, fellowship program, Mm -hmm. and these people, of course, come here, spend several months here, do their project based often on the archival material here, and then they go back, write a book, and that's it. So the idea in setting up this unit that I'm directing um, is really to produce something that these individual scholars might not be able to do Mm -hmm. because it, it requires a long duration to get it done it requires specific resources and a lot of resources, especially money in some respect because it takes so long and also use the opportunity that we have the material here and constantly as we sit here we are so close to the documentation I should mention that in addition to documenting life and destruction, the other large scale project that we are doing here uh, uh, at at our little uh, unit of, of applied scholars, this is the Encyclopedia of Camps and Gettos, mm-hmm. uh, which is a massive undertaking, uh, has been going on for more than 15 years. So far has produced two volumes, one on, if you like, the standard classical concentration camps and the other one on ghettos. Uh, there are six more volumes to come. It's a, it's a massive undertaking, and we're, we're still at it. So between this and the other project, this is really where we, where we spend our I was going to say it's
0: a staggering amount of research you all do, um, and this is maybe one of, one of the things I was struck by in kind of reading the, the the book we're going to talk about today is the fact that you're you're also working in partnerships with other institutions across the globe. Right, that's that's
1: one of the ideas. So we're not sitting in a bubble, if you like, uh, and and mulling over documents. This is really meant to be uh, done in conjunction with scholars in in this country. Uh, and across the globe um, we have contacts uh, that are quite intensive uh, to colleagues here in the U.S. And, and elsewhere. But also it comes back to the notion and to your question that you asked earlier, what what the audience is. And, and mm-hmm. clearly uh, we are primarily trying to reach uh, um, students of the Holocaust. And that, that could be those who teach it and those who study it at, at colleges. Uh, we are not aiming primarily at high school students. That's another kind of branch, if you like, of the museum yeah. uh, that deals with that. But clearly we, also, uh, we are also trying to attract uh, an interested audience that, that uh, is interested in the Holocaust in general and, and in its many uh, topics, uh, that, uh, many of which have not been researched properly and, and who are willing to encounter new material because what we do is really trying to showcase the documents uh, while we offer contextual analysis
0: Focus is on
1: documentation
0: you know, and, and my little bit of anecdotal evidence suggests that this or, which suggests that this series succeeds right i've used this in um, used various volumes in the series in my classes, and students are always very interested in them and, and read them, which seems Normal, but in, as you probably know with university students, it's not actually always done. But here they do it, which is a good sign.
1: Indeed, it is. And of course, we are, we're happy when, whenever that happens. Uh, within our series on documenting life and destruction, we have a subset of Jewish responses to persecution mm. from 1933 to 1946, five volumes. Uh, and altogether hundreds and hundreds of documents. Now that, of course, is a large chunk of stuff, and <laughs> it's really a lot to ask for uh, college students to, to read all that, and mm-hmm. it won't happen. But there is, a, there is a corpus of material that this publication presents, as do others, of course, but this one particularly on that subject, Jewish Responses, that is available and that indeed teachers in the classroom are using uh, in extract, um, and of course they're trying to focus on what they're interesting while they're teaching on uh, their specific topics. But that's the kind of outreach that we we want to have. So it really is uh, the teaching folks,
0: the students, and their teachers. So let's then talk about this book in particular, and why did you decide to include this book in the series? Well, we thought this is a topic that isn't
1: really all that much on people's radar. Um, we we. It seems to be almost uh, commonplace to say that, yes, the Holocaust, properly understood, uh, started with the war. However, the the Polish campaign is not really uh, integrated into that to a large degree. Um, it is seen often as a still a fairly standard military campaign.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if atrocity happened, um, they were part of that campaign and aren't really talked about much. So we thought we want to correct this, this... Uh, a presupposition that out there uh, and also, of course, by focusing on a specific unit or set of units, the security police and the SD that created those reports and other documents that we feature in that volume. We know, and probably the audience knows, that the security police and SD which was commanded over by Reinhard Heydrich turned out then to be the core group uh, for the implementation of the Holocaust. So here we have an early or incident or set of incidents and a campaign that looks like the prelude to the Holocaust. Now, when you read the book, you see that this is not quite the argument that we're making, and mm-hmm. that's something we talk about uh, in the next question.
0: Yeah, and, and just as a side note to listeners, um, if you haven't been listening for a while, um, I interviewed Robert um, Gerwarth about his biography of Heydrich, Oh a year or two ago, and if you 're interested in him, you can find that podcast on the website uh, but let 's start how did german leadership and, and the people involved in planning for the war, what did they anticipate the war against Poland to be like
1: well i think um if you if you focus on the on the leadership um, from Hitler downward and including the the military elite, mm-hmm. there was the understanding that Poland is an illegitimate state. That this is an aberration that came about, uh, as many other things, uh, as a result of World War One. Now, for for the traditional elites in Germany, World War One was a disaster, and of course for the larger uh, population too. But particularly for these conservative elites uh, the nationalist circles, the idea that there was a, a state. Uh, uh, after World War One, that incorporated former German territory was just outrageous and it had to, to disappear from the map. But this is an idea that is really shared um, among top Nazis and the conservative uh, military leadership.
0: And so, along with the German military, and, and, as you suggest, these, these units called Einsatzgruppen enter Poland in the, uh, quite quickly after the invasion starts. What, what are these Einsatzgruppen? Right.
1: So in addition to the to the fighting port, of course, the, the Wehrmacht, the German military, which is the backbone and really the core of, of military aggression, moving forward, fighting the enemy. Uh, there was an understanding fairly early on in the planning for this campaign and subsequent ones that it wasn't enough to just take out the, uh, the enemy by way of, of defeating Polish Army, but you had to do a second thing, and that is to secure the area for long-term domination. Securing and uh, and pacifying that area required the use of non-military entities. And there was an agreement between the military leadership and the SS, headed by by Heinrich Himmler, of course, Mm -hmm. to help the military out by way of providing police units Mobile units that would follow the advancing German military very quickly and would perform key functions in squashing anything that looked like resistance. So the key focus of these of these units, which are highly mobile, and very small, is to to identify potential enemies and then to to fight them and, and take take them out. Um, that could mean a, a number of things: arrests. Um, and then, of course, execution.
0: Where did they get this assumption that pacification would be necessary?
1: Well, uh, this was one of the the kind of standing beliefs uh, uh, in that specific branch of the of the apparatus. We have to to see this in the context of of Himmler's realm of influence. Uh, This is, of course, a a unit that at its core consists of of very uh, committed Nazis. many of whom have been early on party members. Uh, if we look at the membership of the, the uh, Einsatzgruppen, uh, there's a total in Poland of about 2,700. So compared to the Wehrmacht, very small. Mm-hmm. But in terms of their, of their ideological commitment, this is really hardcore. Many of these people not only have PhDs in terms of the commanders of these units, but they also have a very early party membership, or in kind of active activism that they can point to that that predates other folks joining the party who, who joined, for example, in 33. So many of them have joined much earlier, and they have also a background in either fighting during the war, as as during World War One, as as veterans, or as being members of the Freikorps or the post World War One uh, civil war. Uh, units that often in this border region between Germany and Poland played a crucial role in 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 fighting. Uh, in this case, the the Polish uh, um, army or insurgents, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, in this unstable phase after after World War One. So you have a, a highly kind of committed core there that after the Third Reich takes over in Germany, or after Hitler takes over in the 3rd place, starts in 1933, many of these men are put into positions of power as members of the state police, or the criminal police, hmm. um, the Gestapo, and mm-hmm. they then get trained in fighting the enemy. So that's starting in, in 1933, they, by 1939, have a clear idea who the enemy is. Um, it is first and foremost, of course, enemy number one, and that's the Jews. Um, and they have been involved in anti-Jewish policies since 1933, surveillance and anti-Jewish measures. And then, of course, it's anyone who is ethnically or racially not acceptable. And if we're if we're looking across the border, that would be the great part of the Polish population, with the exception, at least that's in the in the in the mind of the of the Nazis at the time, the exception of the ethnic Germans. So those people who have who have a German heritage, live in Poland and are seen as, as member of the, the German folk proper.
0: So and as these people are preparing, both in the military and, and, and in the Einsatzgruppen are preparing to go into Poland in, in, in late August. How detailed are their instructions? The instructions were
1: were not really all that detailed. Uh, so they were rather vague. If we, if we look at these documents, many of which have survived, we don't find clear orders there. We find a kind of a range of broad of topics that, that were to be covered. But when it comes to executions, for example, who is to be executed, you find very little, if anything, at all. Mm. And that is not so surprising if we keep in mind how, again, Himmler's apparatus functions. This is not so much a, a traditional military uh, uh, um, machine. Of course, there was kind of the ideal by Himmler to to make it look like the military, and they all felt like soldiers, that's for sure. But they were also trained to be to be initiative on their, uh, to take initiative on their own, not to wait until they get orders from the top and then merely follow orders. They were there because they, especially the officers, were appointed because they were expected to have a thorough understanding of the ultimate goal. And based on that understanding, you use all opportunities that you have that that open up along the way to make this goal come true. So that means that you are the expert on the ground, the, the unit commander knows best what to do, and within these general guidelines, which again are often quite vague, it is left to the unit commander and his men to execute policy towards a, a, a commonly understood goal. And that's a, that's a phenomenon that starts uh, uh, in that campaign in 1939. Uh, and then we can we can perceive that uh, in a much more radicalized fashion uh, once the war starts against the Soviet Union in 1941, which is also uh, a, a key... Uh, that is really the key uh, uh, um, aspect of Einsatzgruppen history, uh, in uh, in the in the Second World War, because there is a massive killing wave that wave that starts immediately after uh, the Einsatzgruppen get deployed in the Soviet Union in 1941. So it's a little bit different in in Poland, also with a different target.
0: So, what do they find in the initial days of the campaign, and and how do they respond?
1: Well, they find basically what they're looking for. So, mm-hmm. you can see uh, a mindset that is pretty much that. Um, that doesn't allow for much kind of uh, taking in new impressions. They are looking for for, um, partisans, if you want to use that word. That's not the one used at the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they're looking for anyone who could pose any kind of resistance. Um, And the the German military has a similar uh, obsession. So while the military is, is very nervous and many units start executing Polish civilians, the Einsatzgruppen uh, do the same, and so there is a joint obsession with security, and anyone who looks or scans and might pose a potential danger is, is on the list. The second, and this is really pretty really unique for the Einsatzgruppen, is their focus on the Polish elite. They have an understanding as to who those are, clearly Polish nationalists. In fact, there is also a list of suspects that the, the Einsatzgruppen and the police unit Uh, was supposed to arrest. Uh, It wasn't always very accurate. It was often outdated. But anyway, it it indicates a a pre-identification of a set uh, of enemies. And Polish elites, so members of the clergy, uh, intellectuals, politicians, most of them non-Jews were on that list. And then, of course, on top of that, you have the traditional uh, uh, enemy number one, the Jews.
0: Are they on that list precisely because they are imagined to be leaders of some kind of resistance, or are they on the, that list because they're believed to be, and I know this is a, this, this, this one melts into the other, but, but because they will interfere with German plans for what they're going to do with Poland after the campaign is won.
1: Well, there's a a short-term element uh, of that and the long-term. The short-term is, of course, you have to immediately squash any kind of resistance to to make sure that the the area is really conquered. And then to start your administration, which is kind of the medium range, so you you have to be trying to set up an administrative apparatus, um, military starts, but then the understanding is that as part of, of Hitler's plan to take over the East and, and provide living space in the East, this is all going to be German-dominated, if not annexed to the Reich. And that's exactly what happens, of course, after the end of the Polish campaign. The eastern chunk gets taken over by by the Soviets, who are at that time an ally uh, of Hitler, uh, and join the. Uh, the, the fighting uh, on the 17th of, of September, so basically uh, two and a half weeks after the Germans have, have started invading Poland. And the, the western parts of, of Poland get integrated, annexed to the Reich, uh, while there is a chunk of Poland left that becomes the Generalgouvernement, which is under a special uh, administration under Hans Frank, uh, as a former lawyer to, to Hitler, uh, and is also where we. If we look at ghetto images and and things like that. This is what we associate with Poland at the time. So the, the Generalgouvernement is really the, a, a a very prominent feature of German domination. The bottom line is, at the end of 1939, Poland doesn't exist anymore.
0: How much violence is there? And it, and it, I, maybe I should ask, do they find? What they're looking for precisely because they're looking for it, or is there actually significant, I guess we can call it, partisan resistance? And
1: well, I think it's a mix of both. You uh, First, mm-hmm. you have real resistance, and there are atrocities committed against ethnic Germans, uh, particularly in, in Bitkotsch uh, or German Bomberg where the Germans coming in can point to atrocities being committed. And that, is a, that triggers a massive uh, wave of, of violence in that city and in the vicinity particularly, where several hundred are executed immediately once the Germans take over. Overall, the, the numbers of those killed is, is difficult to get at. And we have estimates. Mm. Uh, the reason is that the, the reports that are incoming from the units are often not there. So what hmm. we have collected in our, in our volume is, is a little bit of that material. We also try to incorporate, uh, also, uh, uh, victim, uh, um, mm-hmm. perceptions. And so testimonies, often post-war testimonies by those who were there, who observed or were subjected to, to that violence. Uh, and then there is post-war uh, uh, judicial uh, um, investigations that shed a little light on, on this, this part of the history. The estimates are in the range of 10,000 civilians being killed during the fighting, another 16,000 until the end of October, so afterwards, after the end of the uh, um, the fighting. And then uh, for the, the areas annexed by Germany, uh, the, the estimate of those goals... Jews and non-Jews is at sixty thousand until the end of nineteen thirty-nine. But there is a large, there's really a a, a chunk. uh, It's kind of a a gray zone there. Many of the figures pertaining to uh, to Eastern Europe are are murky and are still still worked on. But that's kind of, I think, a a realistic estimate.
0: Mm. You have this initial wave of, or perhaps not initial wave, but this initial response of the German soldiers to the perceived resistance, whether it actually existed or not. what? How does the leadership in Berlin and in, in, in the Wehrmacht respond to the executions?
1: Well, first, they are the ones who are really interested in being as, as harsh as possible. So they mm-hmm. set the stage with their rather vague guidelines, but also by... By the propaganda that comes from Berlin, um, by speeches from from Hitler and so on. Uh, in the inner circle, for example, vis-à-vis uh, army leaders, Hitler is very outspoken about the fact that Poland is, is about uh, is, uh, doomed to to cease to exist. Uh, there's no future for it, and this all will be German-dominated territory. So there is a large kind of. Uh, um, well, not only buy-in, but clearly an expectation on the part of the regime that these measures mm-hmm. have to be taken. So it's, there is an interaction, though, and I think your question is is pointed that there's an interaction going on between the reports coming in from the field and the centres in Berlin. It's not quite clear, of course, at the very beginning of the campaign how this is all going to play out from the military yeah. fate of the uh, of the act, of what's going on there, too, uh, then the long-term aspect of it. But once there is a system that becomes established, leadership in Berlin has, has no problems whatsoever with atrocities being committed to the point that Hitler actively takes steps to hinder the Wehrmacht from investigating SSN police people who have overstepped the line in the eyes of the military by being too brutal, by having executed too many civilians. Hmm. This is a phenomenon that is, that is somewhat restricted to the Polish campaign, the, the German military complaining about mm-hmm. excessive violence. This doesn't happen then anymore in the Soviet campaign. So the, the military leadership also then expects the SS and police to fulfill a certain function, mostly in a way to do the dirty work for them. So the military sees itself as a fighting force, and we leave the rest then to to Imla's men, and we are not really all that interested in how they do, what they do, as long as the pacification goal is attained.
0: I was really struck um, in some of the documents you you reproduce that that. Outline and, and I'm not I'm not sure govern is the right word but lay out the relationship between the Wehrmacht and the Nazi about about how ordinary they sound um, about how bureaucratic and administrative they are I, I'm the the image that's or the the part that sticks in my mind is this, I, I think it's in the agreement before the campaign actually starts where this, this procedure laid out for how arrests will be conducted, and you've got two carbon copies of arrest reports, and this carbon copy goes, you know, it's not what I think people expect to read when they read documents about death and destruction.
1: Right, well, this is not unstructured violence. This is structured along the lines of a military campaign and with the background mm-hmm. of ex- of the experience within particularly Himmler's apparatus. So the policemen who are now in a... In a in a quasi-military function, perform as policemen. Uh, the war uh, environment, of course, makes it possible for them to to adopt much more radical means than the means they had at their disposal in Germany. Very, very few, in fact, I think it's only two of the, of the Eindertsgruppen leaders were involved in direct physical violence, uh, murder, uh, uh, before the, the start of the war, but Hmm. Us, this changes very very quickly, and then they all become becoming
0: so what do the documents say about how the how the people in the Einsatzgruppen the ordinary rank and file how do they respond to this is it is it hard for them to behave this way it, it, how do they it yeah, takes, yeah, go ahead.
1: um it, um there are some of course who who think they are doing the right thing um some are eager to 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 do what they are asked to do um and some would be reluctant because that's probably not what they expected and some might not like it at all. It is very, very difficult uh, ex post to get an idea as to the motivation at the time, the mindset of the of the man at the time. Um, I think that's probably one of the hardest uh, things for, I don't know, perhaps even genocide uh, uh, scholars in general just uh, beyond the Holocaust to figure out why these perpetrators did what they what they did, and, and I think that's where the scholarship is really grappling. Historians have a, have a, a limited uh, tool set there at their disposal because we uh, we are stuck with the sources that we have. If the sources aren't there, um, we have very little to say, and we basically are left with the speculation. But I think we can... We can assume, based on also other scenarios and what then happens later, that there is an active core of enthusiastic killers that drive that. Uh, sometimes from the leadership, but sometimes it's also subordinate people who take massive initiative, are not negatively sanctioned by their commanders, and thus not only get away with it, but are seen as positive role models, and that that forms a kind of a command climate and a group cohesion that lends itself to to uh, getting rid of any in- inhibitions people might have, and, of course, making new, more radical measures possible the next time over. I have a, I was, a document yeah, go ahead. here that, that might be interesting as a yeah. case in point. Um, and that's a little... I mean, I have to explain what it is. It's a little odd because it's an, an SS uh, investigation done uh, in, in late 1939... And so one wouldn't really expect the SS uh, investigating excessive violence, right, uh, among its its own its own uh, members. The reason, or the background here is that that the commander who is charged is uh, sus- uh, suspected of uh, base motives and also uh, corruption. So there is an investigation that takes place, and there is a criminal policeman who asks one of the members of that unit as to to uh, what what had happened in this particular incident and why he had given a prior statement where he he had uh, referred to criminal habits being formed. Uh, And if it's okay, I'll just read that passage here from from that SS member, uh, what what is meant by that and what he had meant by this prior statement. So here's a quote. By the term criminal habits, I meant partly the shootings, but partly also other unwarranted brutality. Based on my actions in Einsatzkommando 3 of Einsatzgruppe 1, I have come to the conclusion that a human life has absolutely no value there. In the beginning, several shootings were undertaken without obtaining a verdict from the military courts. Later, the persons in question were brought before the military court, which sentenced them to death. Personally, however, I was especially disgusted by the way these executions were carried out. All those sentenced to death were executed by being shot in the back of the neck with a pistol. The condemned had to step up to the edge of a pit that had been dug beforehand, and then they were killed with a shot to the back of the neck. There's a question then by the interrogator. Did it happen that those sentenced were not dead yet after the first shot? And the answer is, I quote, yes. In these cases, further shots were fired. The members of the execution squad were just not trained for these tasks. In my opinion, it would have been quite possible to hand the people over either to the Wehrmacht or to the border police for the carrying out of the death sentence. I think these people, so the members of the execution squad, should at least have been shown how to perform executions so that they would not just fire haphazardly into the back of the neck without causing, as already mentioned, immediate death. I attended one execution where I shot one of the condemned men myself. At first I stood by, and after the shots had been fired and the condemned man had fallen into the pit, I noticed that one person had not been hit at all, but had fallen apparently out of fear into the pit. I then killed that person from above, especially specifically with the shot to the back of the head." Unquote. So one might wonder why this entire investigation uh, and what it would, what's behind it. Now the reason is that, that um, within the SS, uh, it was perfectly fine to kill Jews and other suspects because they were seen as enemy or enemies of the Reich. If, however, these actions were per- perceived on the basis of what was seen as base motives, greed, brutal- excess br- uh, brutality, this was seen as endangering the fabric of the units. The, the, the other men exposed to this violence would, would be in danger of, of becoming... Uh, uh, um, brutalized and that was clearly something that the SS leadership, Himmler personally wanted uh, to avoid
0: How fascinating I'm, I'm also struck there's a, there's a document earlier in the book and I only see this reference once but a gender reference and this is um, uh, a, a, a post-war interrogation of a member of, of one of the Einsatzkommandos where he says um that his commander or superior officer—I'm skimming through this—says um, in this action, "quote, anyone can prove he's a real man." Unquote. That—that's kind of an isolated comment about gender. Does that reappear in other sources that maybe didn't end up in the book, or there,
1: it, it, there is a little bit of that? But you would—I mean, again, this is this is very very difficult to find and it's also yeah. difficult to read because why mm. would that person say that? Why would it? Why would it be entered into the record? These records are often not by batting, but then written down by the interrogator. So again, for historians, the source criticism uh, element is is really, is, is, is quite a tough not to crack. Um, I would not want to, to generalize there, but I think this is clearly what you just quoted is clearly an important aspect, that there is the inner group and the workings of the inner group. Uh, The fact that uh, it think—it comes back to what Christopher Browning has explained in his Ordinary Man, the the situational aspects and the the in-group mechanisms within Mm -hmm. these units that are very important to understand why these men performed what they did while before and after they were perfectly, well, ordinary.
0: Yeah, one of the other places... Um, that I found really striking in the book is the photos that you reproduce. And I should parenthetically compliment you and compliment the publishers on the fact that that the publishers have apparently established a website where you can where you can access the pictures in a larger and more detailed fashion. I think that's wonderful. But but the photos are really startling. Um, what do you make of the fact that German soldiers are taking pictures of what they're doing?
1: Well, I think uh, this was probably for many of them the first time they they left the country. Um. Um, there was uh, a war tourism uh, of, of sorts, and many soldiers had access huh. to cheap photo, uh, uh, photographic uh, cameras. Um, and that was a, a, something that is not really all that uncommon. So photographs were made all the time. Sometimes, although it was prohibited, mass executions were not to be uh, to be photographed. But still, it happened, and there is quite a number of, of sources that, that are left uh, that document uh, these atrocities. Um, there's one sequence, it uh, might be the one that you refer to, uh, where we reproduce album pages, mm-hmm. uh, photographs that are integrated into a narrative that is created by the officer or the member of the Einsatzgruppe. And there you can see not only the isolated image, uh, which we can read one way or another, but the storyline that this Einsatzgruppe member wants us to... To be aware of now, obviously this might have been primarily for his own consumption to kind of show around within family and, and and fellow unit members, but it it indicates as to the kind of experience they were they were having and how they saw this as a. Really a memorable piece of their own yeah. life and something that was almost like like an exotic attraction or like a, a, a visit to i don't know to paris where you would make photographs and 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 you wanted to record that.
0: What about the victims in terms of their role in polish society what how are or are are women and men treated diff, Or uh, in how did the germans treat women and men? Differently if at all
1: No, uh, they did uh, and that I think comes back to the to the gender perception prevailing not only generally at the time But particularly among the Nazi elites where where uh, women were not seen as being dangerous um, In that sense when it comes to political activities So the, the, the target group of violence is mostly male, male. Uh, There are women, however, who get targeted, um, uh, either because of their political background uh, or because they were active in the Catholic Church, often based on allegations that were fabricated or false. Uh, Generally, however, as far as we know, the vast majority of the victims executed, and I mentioned the number 60,000 until the end of of 1939, were male and they were predominantly non-Jewish, again, members
0: of the elite. So then, is there a way in which Jews as target or as victims play a different role either on the ground or in German thinking than the broader categories of victims and threats the Germans perceived?
1: They do. They clearly do. And I think that has also to do with the the overall image of the Jews, of this kind of very strange collective singular that that, Hmm. that Semites uh, often use. The Eastern Jews, or well, those Jews beyond the, the German border towards the east, are seen as being particularly characteristic of their race and particularly dangerous because sure. they are, there are so many of them and they, they uh, have a lifestyle that is so different from not only what what German culture represents but also what the Polish state and nation represents so uh, I think it's fair to say that the, the German occupiers saw. Jews in Poland as something that on the one end was characteristic for their Polish experience on the other hand disconnected from the threat that Poland posed as a, as a political entity as a military entity and so the, the, there is an overlap in terms of elites obviously
0: mm-hmm.
1: but with the classical uh, uh, stereotype that comes to mind um, the, the the Jews dressed in their in their garb and and living in certain quarters of either big cities or in small towns in the Städte, that makes them a specific and identifiable target group. One that you would not find at that time in in the Reich in Germany proper, and thus would be would trigger this antisemitism that had been that had been inbred into the the SS and police, and and so they become. They become almost immediately uh, victims of of this aggression that that is triggered by them looking like the the standard image that Nazi propaganda projects.
0: So once the actual military campaign is done, w- what happens to these Einsatzgruppen and the people in them, and does that change in function change their treatment of the people in Poland at all? Well, uh,
1: once the 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 war has has come to an end, the units become stationary. So mm-hmm. many of these men get integrated into the police uh, posts that are created all over the either annexed uh, parts of Poland or in the General Generalgouvernement, which is this kind of fiefdom under Hans Frank. So you have also other people coming in there as a fluctuation, as always is, among Hymna's uh, apparatus, where people would never spend much time in one location but get, get exchanged. So that's also the same model that then uh, is, uh, is implemented later on in all occupied territories, where you have first mobile units, particularly in the Soviet Union, and then many or members become members of the uh, stationary unit. The functions primarily remain the same. Uh, the intensity is, is, uh, can differ uh, because obviously now these policemen have more time they can, they can uh, assume that they can go about their business more systematically and thus they create the infrastructure for that. Informers, uh, auxiliary policemen, which is very important in, in Poland, so you have ethnic Germans who are drafted uh, into uh, the services of the, the SSM police already during the campaign. Uh, and, and other things that you would do to create, if you like, a normal police function, which really and uh, incorporates the entire spectrum of police work in any country with the added uh, factor of, of violence against those who, who seem to threaten the, the pacification goal.
0: So you, you referred to this broader issue of interpretation. Uh, and so let's, let's return to that. We're, we're kind of coming to the close of our time. How do you understand this campaign in the broader arc of German policy toward Jews and, and other people in the East?
1: Well, it, I think it, uh, it is an, an important precedent, uh, probably less in terms of, of the victim group, because again, we have to keep in mind that the majority of victims are non-Jewish. But precedent in so far as you have the first deployment of a core group of committed Nazis and then also people who become killers in the process. Um, the Einsatzgruppen then get redeployed in other campaigns, and particularly during the, the Operation Barbarossa, so the German attack on mm-hmm. the Soviet Union starting in June '41, The Einsatzgruppen are the ones that really push the envelope and pass the threshold from, from uh, persecution to systematic annihilation. If we see that in the context, we see this as an important precedent. There's also a, an element of personal continuity. Many of the members of the Einsatzgruppen deployed in Poland in 39 also are members of the Einsatzgruppen hmm. in 41, Or then, even until the end of the war, there was even an Einsatzgruppe at the uh, uh, Einsatzgruppen Commandos at the Battles of the Bulge uh, at, towards the very end of the war.
0: Hmm. So we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, for people who are interested in going further, what would you recommend that they read
1: or they watch? Well, there's an awful lot of, of documentary material that we try to point to by way of our documenting Life and Destruction series. Now, mm-hmm. this book that we just discussed is very much focused on perpetrator uh, documents yeah. and also represents the, the, the perpetrator perspective. There is, however, a lot of material, many of which uh, untapped, generated by victims, particularly, of course, here at the Holocaust Museum, generated by Jews. Uh, our series on, on Jewish uh, responses to persecution tries to, to reflect that material, but there is so much more, and I would really want to encourage people to look at the sources, uh, look at the contextualization that's offered. Uh, we are starting on, on a digital uh, project that eventually will become available through uh, college teachers, through students too, that teaches that these documents online, uh, and, of course, you can do so much more uh, in other formats than print, as you just said. Photographs are difficult to print sometimes. So mm-hmm. You need to have to think about other options, and that's where we, we're heading at. So that would be my recommendation, really, to go to the sources. And interest is often triggered, of course, by secondary studies, articles, and so on. That's great. But eventually, I think, uh, in the end, I think uh, people would find it very rewarding to Look at the material that the U.S. Holocaust Museum, the Memorial Museum has and other institutions do
0: that an awful lot. Yeah, I, I would endorse that. And, and as I've said before about other books in previous interviews, I, I encourage all of y'all who are listening to to go out and get this book. We've kind of covered the high points and we've kind of put tried to put the documents in context, but it's reading the documents itself that really brings you to a kind of more uh, so both a deeper awareness of of the events that we're discussing but also kind of asks you or forces you to come to grips with what you're reading in a way that you're not going to get just with a broader kind of narrative description so so go out and buy the book or get the book from the library it's a wonderful book um and we've taken a lot of your time as i said you're going to so very much appreciate it um what are you working on now
1: well as part of our series uh we're currently working on, on the final touches of uh, the diary of Alfred Rosenberg uh, with one of the, the leading Nazis and um, the close associate mm. to Hitler. The book will come out in German in, in April uh, and in, in English in the fall. Uh, the series will continue. Um, and so there's a lot that still is, is here in the archive and elsewhere that we can draw on.
0: Well, I hope when that comes out and as future volumes come out, you'll be uh, willing to come back on the show and talk about it. Oh, definitely. My pleasure. Excellent. Well, as I said before, thank you so much for your time. Um, And I look forward to reading the stuff you do in the future. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jurgen Mateusz about the book War, Pacification, and Mass Murder, 1939, the Einsatzgruppen in Poland. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Scott Strauss about his new book, Making and Unmaking Nations, War, Leadership, and Genocide in Modern Africa. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.